Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, folks. We are back. We are back a little bit sooner than you might have expected us to be back. Who knew that was possible? Uh, Because it is that time again. It is tennis relived time. We have relived Australian Opens. We have relived French Opens. We have relived Wimbledons. And now it's time to relive two particular US Opens. This episode will take us back in time to the year... 2000. Do you remember when the year 2000, David, and I know the answer to this question is very definitely yes, felt like a sort of futuristic time, a space age time, and now it feels like ages ago. Yes, yes. It's it's when we started using the word millennium. I'd never used that before, apart from when talking about Star Wars. Um, but Yeah, when did that happen? It's like, uh, it's like, Pand- it's like all the pandemic lingo that we now that now just rolls off our tongue. When when did Y two K become just common parlance? Well, I, d- I do remember it coming across my radar and me starting to look at all my technology devices and thinking, so these things are just going to stop working immediately. Are yeah, they? what was your level of Y two K fear, David? <laughs> Pretty heightened, yeah. Sounds pretty that. heightened. Yeah, I, I would say so. I just assumed, I, I believed every word of it. Would you have taken a flight and been in the air? Because people were threatening for planes to just cease to function and fall out of the sky at midnight on on January the 1st, I'd, 2000. I'd probably left it a few hours, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, spoiler alert, folks, everything was completely fine. What was your level of paranoia, Catherine? Oh, I just found it all quite exciting. I, I I didn't think the world was going to end, I don't think, because when you're that age, what what would I have been, 13? Um, when you're that age, everything's fine, isn't it? Everything's going to be fine. You know, you just assume things might sort of rock you a little bit, but basically everything will always be fine. Spoiler alert, that's not true either. <laughs> but... <laughs> Matt was in the world, but won't remember anything of what we're talking about today. In fact, Matt compiled uh, the list of things that happened in the year 2000 to set the scene. I'm assuming none of which you remember, Matt. Do you remember the release of Spinning Around by Kylie Minogue? (laughs) 
I don't remember the release, no, but uh, I know the song. You don't remember the scandal caused by her gold hot pants? No, don't remember that, no. Uh, do you remember Craig David the first time around? <laughs> no. No. The answer is no. no to all of these. No. Do you, Did you visit the Millennium Dome? Yes, I did. I know that yep. wasn't directed More on me, that, please, David. Yes, I did. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, everybody was complaining about Said it. Said no one ever. I thought it was wonderful. I went with my parents. We had a lovely day. Everybody was slagging it off. I went on a lovely time, and then and 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 I admit I was sitting in there thinking, "What a great sporting arena this would make!" And then, lo and behold, well, visionary David. <laughs> well, uh, the Millennium Bridge also opened. Tate Modern. It was the year of the Sydney Olympics, of course. Still, I think one of the most successful and iconic Olympics, and we're going to be reliving Marit Safin's. Well, career, but in particular his run to the to the title in New York as a twenty year old in two thousand. But of course, that year the Olympics came after the U.S. Open, didn't it? Because obviously of the Australian climate. But that was something that we touched on a little bit in our rel- Olympics relived episodes last year. Catch those in our in our back catalogue. Um, Tiger Woods won three of the four majors that year, which. I wasn't following golf at the time. I'm sure that felt monumental at the time, but I'd say 21 years of hindsight makes that feel even more monumental. Mm. I'm blown away every time I look at Tiger Woods's stats in golf because they're just so apart from anything else that anyone has been able to do since. Uh, And then he won the first major of 2001 to hold all four in a row. And that was before, by the way, anybody was doing that in tennis, which is which is something mm. that was striking me. I remember watching an interview with him just after he'd won that final one of the four, and they said, "You know, do, are you do you do, are you a Grand Slam winner, effectively?" And he said, "Well, I'm holding all four, you know." And that was before Serena had won all four it was before um obviously Federer and Nadal and Djokovic had come along and and I remember getting very competitive on behalf of tennis when Federer started to catch him up and eventually overtake him but as you say Matt nobody's anywhere near that level of dominance at that time okay Jack Nicholas has more in total but but um yeah it's quite interesting isn't it to to compare all these years on Sorry to lower the tone, but it was also the year of the the first series of Big Brother, which was a very big feature in my life at the time. I could probably still tell you most of the contestants. <laughs> Nasty Nick and Craig. one of Big Brother and, and the order in which they exited the house. Mm. Yeah, I loved it so much. Um, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston got married. PlayStation 2 was released. Uh, and of course, it was the year that George Bush won the US presidential election, uh, defeating Al Gore. Um, But of course, the fact that he won wasn't actually known and confirmed until the year 2001, I don't think, um, because of all the legal battles over hanging chads in Florida. I actually recently listened to a very good podcast series about all of that uh, by Slate, if anybody wants to check that out. So we've promoted uh, political podcasts, we've promoted golf, (laughs) <laughs> How about some tennis? What was Marit Safin doing in the year 2000? He was 20 years of age. He was born in Moscow in January 1980. His father managed a local tennis club 
when Marat trained, but he needed to move away from home at a young age to give himself a chance of being a tennis player. Now, this is something I absolutely didn't know. You know, I feel like Marit Safin's career pretty closely tracked my first generation of tennis interest. But um, he originally went to the Bolletieri Academy in Florida, but Nick Bolletieri chose Marcelo Rios for a scholarship instead of Marit Safin. And it was at that point that Marit Safin went to went to train at an academy in Valencia and, of course, became fluent in Spanish. And I had no idea. Imagine having the choice between Marcelo Rios and Marit Safin in terms of raw talent. And I know that's a, that's a false debate, according to a lot of people, but raw natural talent, you'd, I think you'd struggle to find two players with a combined total greater than those two. Mm. And I would struggle to pick between them if I'd have been in Nick Bolletieri's shoes. I mean, they couldn't be more... Did he pick wrong? Did he pick wrong? Well, Wait, Was Marcelo Rios question. part of... Part of uh, the movement, folks, is going to come up a lot <laughs> today. Uh, was he, was Marcelo Rios part of the movement? He was before the movement. Yeah, he, right. was, he was part of the problem, actually, <laughs> because he came along and was prodigiously talented but an absolute nightmare as a human being to deal with um i'm not saying he was without virtue but he was one of the most well he was the most difficult player i ever dealt with at the atp when and that was in my time there and he got to world number one with the public aware of that david oh god yeah i mean he he, there was a, a piece front cover of sports illustrated uh, with a picture of him and the headline, the most hated man in tennis. And uh, and the the whole article was about how difficult he was to deal with. And, and I mean, I've got quite... Had you supplied a... the quotes, David? <laughs> I could have done, I'll tell Off you. I've got a, secret, a secret ATP source. I, I, I wasn't, but I, you know, I'm not saying I wouldn't have done because there were quite... A f- I mean, I certainly have got a lot of tales from my time dealing with Marcelo Rios. Funnily enough, we've got Yevgeny Kafelnikov on today's podcast talking about Marit Safin. Yevgeny was also very, very difficult to deal with for me at that time. And yet now, post-career, he couldn't be nicer and he couldn't have been more helpful. But um, I don't think Marcelo Rios has changed much. And Yevgeny Kafelnikov was, bless him, very much a part of the reason that people were desperate for the movement, right? Yeah. Yeah, there was a, there was a period of time and it was we're probably about to enter one now as well, where you're between generations. And Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi were the rivals of the time. And and everybody was talking about that for a good six or seven years. And then you got to a stage where Agassi had, had disappeared from view. He'd had that, that incredible year in 95. He'd won Olympic gold in 96. And then he disappeared. And in 97 and 98, he really wasn't a factor. And at that point... Really, you'd got Pat Rafter at the US Open, but you'd also got Carlos Moya and Yevgeny Kafelnikov and players like that who Peter Corder. were successful, were winning stuff, but they weren't serial winners and it was difficult to, to build a real narrative about things. And, uh, and when, in inverted commas, the movement came along and was talked about in the early 2000s, that was a, there was a big advertising campaign of which Sam, Safin was front and center called new balls please and they lined was up was he was he ahead of Roger Federer in the in the new balls please lineup way ahead 
Was he the one? Federer was on on the outskirts. Yes. And, and is that because he had done more winning? Uh, well, he'd won. It was because of this U.S. Open that we're about to describe and and cover. Okay. Because, uh, and I think I might have said before, he was a bit miffed that Federer was even in that lineup because Federer hadn't done anything. That was his view. <laughs> you know, there was him, me, and Curtin and Leighton Hewitt. We've won stuff. Was his view. We've won major titles who's this you know this guy yeah he's talented but he hasn't done anything was his view um and i mean to be honest he was right it was all about potential back then now i should say before we get into any of this uh that our guest editor for this episode is james meredith who is very helpfully and very ably guided i was going to say our hands with the research and prep but actually it is all down to david and matt david went into interviewing overdrive for this episode there was a period of about seven hours where david must have had some red bull or something because he just disappeared disappeared from whatsapp and came back and said i've done 27 interviews folks. We're, we're, we're all set to go for the saffin episode matt i hope you've done all the research um so yes thank you very much to david and matt and to james meredith uh for your help with guiding the episode and with choosing the year 2000 and Marit Safin. Let's hear from the first of many people that we're going to hear from in this episode, one of one of David's many interviews. This is Chris Clary of the New York Times, of course, remembering the first moment that he saw Marit Safin and his talent. And he says he instantly saw a future world number one. I mean, I've only had that number one for sure feeling watching men's players twice. First time was with Murat, 98 French Open when he kind of came out of the woodwork and you know, beat Agassi and, and, uh, and was basically, you could just see his game was this next level with a double-handed backhand, leaping. This guy's six foot four, he could run like a deer, had power from everywhere, big serve, huge swagger, charisma. I just watched him play and said, that's number one. He will be number one. Um, and as it turned out, <laughs> the other guy was Roger Federer, when I saw him play in Basel, 2001 in Davis Cup against us. So I was right in both cases, I got to say, but, you know, obviously with Murata, it didn't last very long. <laughs> a matter of, I've forgotten whether it was a couple weeks or one week or what it turned out to be. And it was in 2000, which was the year when they had that crazy system with the points race where, where you didn't really uh, give those who reached the top of the, uh, you know, the 52-week ranking their proper due. They were using, using the year-long points race instead like Formula One. So, at the time when Marat actually hit that spot on the computer, there was no celebration of it. It was only post facto. So he kind of got short shrift there. But for me, Marat really had everything. He was had you know uh, he was taller than most of the players in that era at six foot four. He was he was really mobile for a big guy, and that was considered big at that time. He had such amazing power and ability to uh, do damage from all different parts of the court. I think he could volley pretty well. He wasn't a great volleyer, but he was effective when he got when he came forward, and he he was confident and had an all court game in that sense. And he was just you couldn't take your eyes off him when you watched him. So for me, one of the things I talk about in the Master is that we always think of Rogers sort of being predestined for greatness, and perhaps there was a bit of predestiny in there. But there also are other guys around him also like they had all the tools and they didn't make it. So I was trying, and I use Murad as kind of the big example of all the things that. That could have happened to Roger in some way because Roger was also very volatile as a young man. He had trouble with his emotions, as we all know. It lasted longer than people remember. 
And one of the matches that helped Roger change was a match in Rome against Murat, actually, when they both were just yelling and cursing and tossing rackets around and sort of just looking miserable on the court. I remember Roger watching a video of that match afterward and saying, I'm not sure that's the image I want to project to the world. That wasn't the end of his behavior, but it was definitely contributing to it. And Murat never, never had that, you know, come to the mountain moment. He was never able to really control his temper and his emotions for very long. And, and um, you know, on a poignant level, he had a lot of baggage too. I mean, he left home very, very young from Russia, kind of shopping around for a place to, to work on his game. His mother was a tennis, very good tennis player, one of the best in former Soviet Union. And um, she coached him, but he needed to get outside the country during his times of trouble to get good. And he basically uh, left home pretty much for good at 14, maybe even 13. And I talked to him for the book, and he talked a lot about that, actually, and how you know, really it was traumatic for him. And that was definitely part of the reason why I think he lacked some of that core confidence and core stability. It can make you grow up faster, it's true, and give you strength, but it can also deprive you of some of that feeling of inner security. So Murad is a fascinating case, and it was, if anybody listening to this is too young to remember him, you know, hey, YouTube right away. I think that was aimed at you, Matt. Basically my life motto. <laughs> <laughs> and P.S., next time you're picking your femme du jour uh, and tipping them for success, mm. definitely run them past Chris Clary first. <laughs> 100% strike rate on predicting world number one. <laughs> I mean, he's definitely got a conservative policy with predicting, but mm. uh, yeah. wisely so. He doesn't do 150 podcasts a year and have to make predictions <laughs> on every single yeah. one. It is amazing to hear Marit Safin, two-time Grand Slam champion and former world number one Marit Safin being talked about as the counterfactual for Roger Federer and all the success he's had. But that is the level of talent and potential that Marit Safin had, right? That I think unanimously the tennis world consider him an underachiever. Yes, in strict talent terms, uh, I would definitely say so. He he could do it all. He He was a next generation player. He didn't We'd never, we'd never really seen anything. You just qu- said next generation, David. Yeah, but I'm this saying is, it in a, a this sort is of, the movement era. Yeah, but I know what I mean. I mean this okay. this chap was was the real thing from the first time you saw him. Um, and uh, when was the first time you saw him? It would have been '98. It would have been the the Davis Cup, and it would be the the matches that Chris. References when he first saw him as well shortly, so it was around the same period, and uh, I mean he was he was cultish. He was there was a a youth to him, even though he was six five and chiselled, and he was that kind of oh my god, look at him! He looks like somebody's invented him out of uh, out of a, a comic book. You know, he can't. It doesn't look real. Um, just the perfect physical specimen. He looked like. And yet he still had this backhand. He still had this fluidity on his strokes. And he was hitting incredibly hard at the same time. I mean, just no weaknesses that were obvious. And uh, and yet he was going bananas between points. And, uh, you know, you, you're trying to work out, well, how can he ever 
get this balance. And I think that the, the, the truthfully, as we'll, we'll find out through the course of this podcast, that is that was his internal struggle. That was part of what held him back, really. And uh, but in terms of talent, yeah, two Grand Slam titles is an underachievement. Where were you in '98, David? Were you working for the ATP at this point? I, I joined the ATP at the start of '98, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I came across him probably for the first time in 2000 actually really to deal with uh, a lot Um, but he was being talked about a lot and when he he had his big Grand Slam breakthrough it it had gone one of those situations where he had the breakthrough in 98 where he's on everybody's radar and everybody's talking about him then he just disappeared he just he just couldn't put it all together he couldn't transition at all and then he figured it out and it all happened in 2000. So it w- there was a gap between the two. Well, you were, you were an early adopter, of course, David, a, a, movement, a movement evangelist. But, of course, there were people that were aware of him well before them. And, and one of them was his compatriot, Yevgeny Kofelnikov, who had already won a Grand Slam title by, by 1998. Let's hear from, from Kofelnikov. I met him... Uh practice with him and uh, you know first impression was uh, you know what a what a talent what a talent you know he had a lot of respect for the his older teammates and he listened you know which is was quite uh, you know surprising for me because you know all the all the young kids seems to me at that age they act like they know everything but he was he was the guy who, who was who was willing to listen any any advice and uh, that's what uh, was uh, you know quite quite impressive mm, very impressive and and i mean his raw mm. results happened quite quickly didn't they i remember he had some great results in in 98 as a tennis player as somebody who you were at the very top of the game at that time how how good mm. was he at that age i mean how how quickly did it happen his uh, his match in Atlanta, when we played USA in Davis Cup uh, first round, uh, when he had the courier on his on his robes, and uh, you know he played Agassi, and, uh, you know we were he was two sets to love up against Courier in, in, in that in that match, we, which is we should have won and gone through, but uh, you know he was 18 years old, and probably the experience uh, didn't help him to get through that match. But you know from that point on, we we all knew that. Uh, you know, great results and great success uh, in his career uh, will come, and that was undoubtable. Yeah, well, it's and it certainly did happen. I mean, looking at that 2000 U.S. Open, mm-hmm. I mean, he mm-hmm. he he thrashed Pete Sampras in the final. He beat look, him. Look, look, we have to go uh, just just before that that thing all happened. Okay, uh, we all know that. You know, 2000 was the best uh, season in his career. Mm-hmm. You know, unquestionably, he won seven tournaments. And uh, the week in Estoril, he started to work with uh, Chesey, who was Andrei Chesnikov. Yes. And I think Chesey uh, played a huge role into sort of mobilizing him uh, mentally and tactically uh, at that age, at 20. And, um, you know, winning the... Barcelona, Mallorca. Then I, I think he made the final in uh, in Hamburg. But just the great results came along after they they started uh, their relationship. 
Well, that was me told by Yevgeny Kafelnikov, wasn't it? Um, but he, he was quite right. I was glad he did that. You know, he brought me back to memories that I'd I'd forgotten really of that period in the spring of two thousand, which is is when I met and worked with Marit Safin in this transition period for him. He'd had these terrible results. He'd started two thousand with five first round losses, and he'd he'd been beaten by a chap called Grant Stafford, who was 472 in the world at the Australian Open. He lost to him in straight sets. Um, and, and who, according to his ATP bio, is 15 centimetres tall. <laughs> yes, for some reason they've got his six-foot height the wrong way around and they've got <laughs> zero foot six. <laughs> anyway. um, but uh, what what was happening, I mean... So I think Safin, even in that match, I think he was. I think he got a fine for lack of effort as well. And mm. uh, you know, I mean, that's that's pretty serious. This is the guy everybody's hyping up. Everybody's talking about. He's got this unlimited well of talent. He's got the perfect physique, and yet he's he's just not putting it in. He's not producing. He's a mess. Really, he's all over the place. And. Uh, I remember arriving to the tournament in Mallorca in the spring that year, and he had just started working, as uh, as Yevgeny Kovalnikov was talking about, he'd started working with with Andrei Chesnikov, himself a former Grand Slam semi-finalist, who spent a week with him. They went to Barcelona. Safin won the tournament in Barcelona and arrived to, to Mallorca. And I remember watching that Barcelona final whilst in Mallorca and kind of assumed that then... Safin is going to pull out of Mallorca because he's just won Barcelona, you know. Well, he didn't. He arrived the next day. And and I was at the stage of my career with the ATP. I'm, I'm in my third year where I'm getting a bit bored of just going to the tournaments and experiencing them. I wanted to do what we're doing right now. I wanted to get some stories. I wanted to sort of do some interviews. So I thought, right, I'm going to interview Marit Safin. So I, 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 and put it all in the media notes, you know, give it out to everybody. So I went and interviewed him and he told me about how, about his sort of inner, about his rage and how he'd broke, he'd counted the number of rackets that he'd broken in the last year. And it was well over 40 uh, during the course of matches. And, um, and then I spoke to Chesnikov shortly afterwards for the same piece. I mean, he was one of the most interesting guys I think I've ever interviewed in tennis and he saw things so clearly in reg- in relation to Safin it was it was it was like somebody who if you'd have given him an ounce of Safin's talent what he could have done with it and it was like this was his opportunity to show that and he started he just helped Safin see the court and see the matches and he refused to accept anything other than 100% efforts and the and all the excuses that Safin might have come up with, he wasn't hearing them. He wasn't having it at all. And Safin won and won Mallorca as well. So he won Barcelona, Mallorca. He reached the final in Hamburg. Um, and and he was off and running. I mean, that relationship didn't last very long. I suspect that Chesnikov's straight talking eventually did for him, really, as a, as a coach, as a coaching relationship. But I think his impact on him was profound. I was reading up on that, and it's it's quite interesting because Safin, um, before working with Chesnikov, was working with Rafael Mensua, who had been his coach since he was thirteen, and and he said we're like father and son. You know, we we loved each other, but 
we were getting to the point where I was just saying, oh, F you. And he was saying F you to me. And, and we needed a change. And Chesnikov wasn't actually telling me anything that different. He was just, I needed to hear it from someone else. And what I needed to hear was that I needed to fight. And Safin said, I was losing six love in the second set so many times before then. And I looked it up. He lost to Andreas Vinci Guerra, 6-3, 6-love in Copenhagen. He lost to Nicholas Escudé, 6-2, 6-love in Indian Wells. And he lost to Gaston Gaudio, 7-6, 6-love in Monte Carlo. He's just wow. he's just sort of tanking these second sets. You'd, you'd be developing a massive reputation at, at that point, surely. Mm. That was happening. So he needed to hear it from Chesnikov. He gets himself together on on the clay. And then as as David said, this this coaching situation did kind of remain in a state of flux because Chesnikov leaves. Um, Tony Picard comes on board during the grass, but then he leaves. And Alexander Volkov is with him during the summer hardcourt season. And Safin's asked at this point whether he needs a full-time coach. And he says, well, I'm not disciplined enough. I get bored too easily. And then when asked why coaches don't stay with him for a long time, he, he sort of cheekily said, I, yeah, I can't understand it. You you get to spend 24 hours with me. That should be really hard to resist, shouldn't it? And um, <laughs> that's, that's kind of his personality and character coming through. And then just as David said, he was getting this reputation for smashing rackets. He claimed to have smashed 48 in 1999 and and by 2000 he's he's on the same pace again he's sort of keeping count and keeping up with it and i found an article from john wertheim saying that the atp had actually relaxed its rules on racket abuse at the time on the grounds that it promotes color among the players and um matt safin said that's the way it should be i'm not like stefan edberg i'm not a robot i'm an individual who gets mad and if i break a racket who does it really hurt um, and, you know, just as we've said, this was around the sort of time when the new Balls Please campaign was launched. And that, I think, the game of Safin and also the personality put him front and centre of it. Um, an article in on Salon, written by Diane Sayo in 2000, says, Maybe you've seen the ads, the black and white photos of chisel-faced tennis players gripping their rackets in gladiator-like poses. But unless you're a serious tennis fan, these athletes, Quirton, Hewitt, Safin, Ferrero and Tommy Haas, might not register as hot up-and-coming stars. Men's tennis desperately needs to change. The two brightest lights of the game's old guard, Agassi and Sampras, are ageing, and no one else on the men's tour has achieved their magnitude of appeal. The problem is particularly worrisome in the United States, where tennis is already overshadowed by other sports. And TV audiences tend to tune in only when big names are smashing serves. So there was this attempt to kind of celebritize the next generation. And they came up with this new balls, please slogan. And Agassi diplomatically commented that it's good to introduce the players to the public or the public to the players. But Sampras said they could probably find a better slogan. And just in light of all that, I think we kind of arrive at Toronto in 2000 which is a big week for the new balls please campaign and the movement because Matt Safin wins the title and he beats Pete Sampras in the quarterfinals 6-4 3-6 and then 12-10 in a final set tie break and Malavai Washington is commentating for ESPN and he says this is a major 
changing of the guard. It it shows that these young guys aren't afraid to take on the big guys, which is obviously quite a sweeping statement, you know, for a whole generation of players, but I think was probably quite accurate in terms of Safin. He he sort of lost his any fear he had that day and we'll obviously go on to talk about what he did in the 2000 US Open final but such a defining feature of that final is Safin sort of playing without fear I think. So being the Toronto champion what was his status going into that US Open was it was it like when Andrescu went into the US Open two years ago sort of everybody thinking sort of their heads telling them surely she can't be a favourite for this title. She, you know, didn't know who she was a year ago. But what my eyes are seeing is telling me that she, you know, was it like that being I, talked about maybe I, as an improbable contender? I would say an improbable, an improbable contender. Yes, maybe my memory's playing tricks on me. I, I kind of felt with Andrescu that felt more likely when we were on the brink, when we were coming into that US Open. The the level of form she was in as well, she'd shown so much reliability in terms of doing it several times, winning winning big matches, coming in through in three setters. With Safin, it did feel like a hot streak and probably going to end. You know, that that's how there was there was a lot of hope, I would say, because I was working for the ATP at the time, I was hoping, actively hoping that this guy would break through and do it, or that Leighton Hewitt might, or or Federer was the obviously the one that I really wanted to, to do it because of having seen him two years previously and seen all this talent and he wasn't doing anything in terms of breaking through. Um, I know I know. one of James Meredith's questions was, what was Roger Federer doing in 2000 at that US Open? And, and we, we, we recalled that he, he lost to Ferrero. It was a real new balls please matchup, as, <laughs> as they called it back then. And it was, I think it went all the way. But, you know, Federer got beaten in that final set. And, and that was what he was like. With Safin, I think there was a lot more hope. But, I mean, frankly, he... he he didn't actually start very well in that US Open at all. Mm. Yeah, well, John Wertheim in his preview piece said that Safin's stamina and heat-seeking baseline missiles place him on a short list of viable contenders. But, uh, you know, I think also a lot of people were looking at Sampras, right? He'd just, he'd just broken the men's Grand Slam record at Wimbledon. He's going for his, I think, fifth US Open title He's kind of the favourite. But yeah, it's a quite a wild start to the US Open. Gustavo Quirton is the number two seed and he he loses to Wayne Arthurs, a qualifier in round one. And number one seed Andre Agassi loses to Arno Clement, 6-3, 6-2, 6-4 in round two. So that sort of really opens up those sections of the draw. And then just as David said, Marat Safin is, is having his own struggles. In, in the first round, he's pushed for two hours and 50 minutes in a four-set win over Thierry Guardiola. And then in the second round, he needs three hours, eight minutes and five sets to overcome the oldest man in the draw, 35-year-old Italian Gianluca Pozzi. Pozzi. Oh, Matt doesn't know who Gianluca Pozzi is, David. (laughs) Which is very much of its time. And actually, Pozzi was the classic slow baller. He would hit sliced backhands all day and just sort of push the ball around Marit Safin's 
worst nightmare really <laughs> as an opponent see santoro head to head yeah the fa- yeah the fabrice santoro kind of um prelude with um gianluca pozzi and then in round three is is the most dramatic match of them all against Sebastian Grosjean. And Safin wins the first two sets, six four seven six. He wins the opening game of the third set. He then loses nine games in a row, including losing his serve four times in a row. And Grosjean levels the match at two sets all. You know, it, it's one of those sort of inexplicable Safin moments, and people are thinking, oh. It's happened again. He's come in on form, but that sort of weakness he's got has, has reared its head. And he's suddenly in a fifth set with Grosjean. Grosjean goes up a break in the fifth set and gives it back. But then at 4 all 30-15 in the fifth set, there's an 85-minute rain delay. They return. It goes to a tie break. And Safin leads 5-4 in that tie break. There's then another rain delay. This one lasting an hour and 45 minutes. And they have to come back. Grosjean wins the first point when they come back. It's five all in the final set tie break. Both of them two points away from victory. Safin then hits a forehand return winner and then wraps it up on his own serve in the next point. Scrapes through. And there's this story that in the rain delays, Safin had to borrow some kit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Correct. That's what I read as well. Um, uh, what I heard was that that he um, he had to borrow shorts off one player, socks off another, and the person we read that he was borrowing the socks from was Jeff Tarango. Let's ask Jeff. Is that true? Yeah, David, you're absolutely right. Merit Safin came up to me and said, "I need your socks." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And he goes, "I forgot my socks. Could I?" have a pair of your socks and i was like yeah sure he's like everybody says you have the best socks and i was like okay have a pair of my socks and he went out and won his match came back graciously tried to give them back to me i said no those are your lucky socks and super carl from the u.s open said i will wash those for you and make sure those lucky socks go all the way and they did he won the u.s open with those socks a lot of questions to be asked about the (laughs) phrase everyone says you've got the best socks (laughs) is that is that something that people are gossiping about in the locker room i i I would say it wasn't public knowledge at least outside of the locker room i wasn't i wasn't really aware of the uh the sock quality of jeff tarango but there we are you know i mean the facts there (laughs) i love the idea that he wasn't he wasn't prepared to accept just any old socks he went after the best socks i would be in such a panic i'd you know i'd put bin bags on my feet (laughs) (laughs) if required but no he's gone and sought the best socks in tennis it's brilliant and it worked out for him yeah and then you know from that point onwards safin's run to the final is is more straightforward He, he thrashes Juan Carlos Ferrero, who, as, as we've said, had taken out Roger Federer. Uh, he then beats Nicholas Kiefer in the quarterfinals in four sets and then a straight sets win over Todd Martin in the semifinals. And after that match, Todd Martin said, it seemed as though he was laughing at me. Marat has so much game. He makes shots that five or ten years ago, 
people would laugh at and say he's just taking baseball swings. It's awesome to see the shots he can hit, especially as a big guy, stretching across his body, flicking, but also hitting angles. It's amazing. He says, this guy's a way better player than Pete Sampras was 10 years ago. Pete was a relative unknown who played a stupendous tournament. This guy, among the few who know the sport, is not unknown. Wow. That's that's a great series of quotes, isn't it? And, and I really take that point about the baseball swings because having watched just a bit of the footage of the final, he's taking full swings against Pete Sampras' first serves. And he, mm. I mean, he's, he's middling them. He's making them. Yeah, he, he was making... Pete Sampras kind of doubt the game that had that had won him twelve Grand Slams up to that point, wasn't yeah. he? Because he was just drilling these these backhanders. Somehow, I mean, I've I've watched highlights, so maybe all the forehands have been edited out. But somehow he managed to get the ball on his backhand the whole time. I just I've just watched half an hour of him him hitting nothing but perfect backhands, um, and he's just either drilling these these returns just as clean winners or so deep that Sampras can barely get a racket on them. Or if Sampras is serving volleying, drilling them at his feet, just relentlessly with this laser-like power and precision. He looked befuddled, Mm. Sampras. There's something I always think when I watch Safin, and I noticed it in this match as well, that the racket just looks so small in his hand. You know, some players sort of lug their racket around and sort of struggle to hit through the court with him you know he's like the poster boy for easy power it it all just flows from that racket and just shoots off his strings and yeah the way he takes takes the racket back is like a baseball swing just teeing off and he, I mean his backhand must be one of the best sort of backhands in terms of it being a weapon that there has ever been you know maybe Maybe some people have defended better on the backhand side, but as a, for a point-ending shot, Safin's backhand is extraordinary. And maybe on the face of it, you know, world number seven, that's just one Toronto. Okay, he was the underdog going into that final, but it shouldn't be as, as shocking as it was for the world number seven and, and Toronto champion. But it was, wasn't it? It was the manner in which he did it. It was destruction it was fearsome tennis from from Pete, uh, from from Marit Safin and Mary Carrillo was in the commentary box that night and she was as taken aback by what happened as everybody else normally when Pete took a court against just about anybody he was the imposing presence you know he was the consummate athlete and he he played big he moved so beautifully you know, he took charge of the court and he just never did that against Safin. Safin was bigger, was stronger, held the court better. Uh, Pete was trying to serve volley and time and again, he got passed. Um, he tried to aim at Safin's backhand, which I always thought Safin's backhand was one of the most underrated in the modern game. Uh, it was beautifully composed. It, he struck the ball so cleanly. Myra Safin's one of those guys that when he played like that, the match sounded different. <laughs> like, and Pete hit a pretty big ball, but when Myra Safin hit that day, it sounded different. It sounded bigger, sort of how Juan Martin del Potro's 
ball used to come off his strings. It had a, a diff, he just put the thump on it. Um, and I, early on, you kept, again, it was unusual for Pete to be kind of flat in that championship match because he always thought of history. And you never got that sense from Safin, as great as his talents were, his gifts were. You never thought that he was trying to make history. And Pete always seemed to be thinking in those ways. So, you know, again, I, you, okay, the first set goes by. All right. Well, you know, Pete's going to clear his throat and start, you know, holding serve and, and looking, for, looking for breaks. And you just, I don't think even now, if you ask Pete, what, what the hell was that? I think he would just, he would just say the same things he said after that match. Like, I didn't think he could play that well for, for that long. So that's how kind of the, the neutral onlooker viewed that Marit Safin performance that that night in New York, we we can't speak to Pete Sampras. We do keep trying. We'll get him. We'll get him at some point. David will relive the nineties with Pete Sampras <laughs> at some point in the tennis relived future. Um, but David has spoken to his coach um, that night, Paul Anacone, um, about his experience of of watching his charge and the the moment that he realised there was there was a problem for Pete out there. You know, I knew he was unbelievably talented and clearly, you know, you don't get to a final of a major by luck, by virtue of luck. So I knew he played some good tennis, but I also knew who he was playing. You know, I was pretty confident in my guy. Pete was pretty good in the big matches. So I, I actually felt with Safin, look, the guy is so unbelievably gifted, Murat. You don't ever really know what you're going to get. And I think... That's why, you know, he was ranked number one in the world. And that's why, you know, the all-time greats and the rest of the players generally didn't want to see him on the other side of the net because he didn't have any glaring weaknesses. And he was one of the first guys that was, you know, 6'4", 6'5", that I remember that was an amazing athlete at, 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 at that stage and was able to move so comfortably with his height around the tennis court, all the little subtle movements he was um, – he was so comfortable at. So, you know, he was kind of, I think, one of the beginnings of a new reign of very, uh, you know, pretty tall tennis players who were incredibly athletic as well. So um, that being said, I felt comfortable, you know, with Pete and uh, I never expected, you know, Safin to come out and play like he played for the whole, you know, the whole three sets. So he'd be Pete in straight, straight sets. And he was, I was like, okay, he's going to have a lull. He's going to have a lull. He's going to have a lull. And he never did. When did you realize you've got a problem in the coaching box watching that match? Kind of after the second set, you know, in three to five sets. And I just felt like I was waiting for a lull and and there hadn't been any yet. So when you see two solid sets like that, you kind of start to go, hmm, he's pretty ready for this. But then I just wondered maybe in the third set as the finish line approached, would he have any hiccups and i'll tell you he was pretty amazing Seth, and he really you know he just kept playing and let you know and and to me that's hard to do especially against someone like pete when you know if you give them a little bit of an opening it's going to be a long day so it was really amazing to watch how did pete feel about it afterwards i mean obviously aside from disappointment i i know that he would he he would have an expectation or a, a uh, he's got history of other matches and then he comes off the court 
not having won a set against the guy. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've found and I still find so amazing about people like Pete and Roger was like this too, is the, their perspective about winning and losing, you know, even big matches, you know, there, there's disappointment, um, but there's also just kind of pragmatism, you know, the ability to be able to go, yeah, you know, I lost today. The guy was either too good or I didn't play great or whatever it was, but they processed it really in a kind of a healthy way. Um, they can put their, uh, you know, competitive blinders in the cabinet and, and sure they know they're great competitors, but also know you lose sometimes. And so I, I think Pete, you know, I, I think Pete had a pretty good perspective about that. You know, he'd beaten them at the open a couple of years earlier, but, but they'd had a bunch of really tough matches. So I, I knew Pete, you know, would handle it with, you know, with grace and, you know, frustration disappointment but also i get it you know sometimes you lose so he's always impressed me with that stuff it was a disappointment but there was a lot of pragmatism involved so i think he understood he lost to a guy that played really well on a big stage i would also add to that not to not to correct paul anacone who was there i mean all that is is obviously absolutely true but i as i was watching the the highlights of the 2000 final this morning Obviously, I fell down a YouTube YouTube rabbit hole, and and the next video that was played to me was the U.S. Open semi-final of the following year between Pete Sampras and Marit Safin, the the rematch, and Pete Sampras won that in a very close three sets, and his celebration afterwards was quite something. Actually, it was really emotional. There was a lot of relief there he was pretty in Safin's face with the uh, respectfully so but it you know that that revenge meant something to him um so yes he might have been very pragmatic about it in the moment but I don't think that meant it didn't hurt and it didn't stick with him and he didn't have a point to make the following oh, yeah. year yeah for sure that that i haven't seen the footage you reference uh, I, I remember watching the match live and and that now rings a bell um but no it totally adds up what you've said these sort of champions take it as a personal slight and he's got such pride sampras and he was humiliated that night in 2000 he he's in the final his record in finals was 13-1-2 lost um, at Grand Slam level, and he's he's getting embarrassed really by a twenty year old in front of his own fans, the the people that have been watching him dominate the U.S. Open for the last decade and win so many titles, and yeah, he and we in the media were writing him off. That's the thing. People were starting to have those conversations that we've all been having for however many years about Federer and Nadal and Andy Murray. Um, is when are you going to stop? Are you done? Are you finished? And of course, Sampras had, had lost to Federer at Wimbledon. The new balls, as they were being called, were were coming along and and moving him out. That's how the that's how the narrative was being developed. And this that was his opportunity to say no. It's kind of the perfect champion mentality, isn't it? To sort of recognise 
I think, in Sampras's words, he got steamrolled by Safin in that US Open final of 2000 and to accept that, but to also take it personally and use it as fuel for the future. You know, he seems to have got that balance just right. And just as you're saying, David, it's fascinating how after the 2000 US Open final, you'd think Safin is the one on the rise, the one going to be hyped. Sampras is the one whose best days of his career are behind him. After that US Open final, they won the same number of Grand Slams, one more each, which is kind of amazing to think about when you consider where they were in that moment. Sampras figured out winning, didn't he? Winning big major tournaments and Safin won two slams and plenty of other things, but he he wasn't a serial winner in the same way that Sampras was. Just uh, just as a, as a quick one as well, by the way, the next match in 2001 that Sampras would play in the final was against Leighton Hewitt, which he would lose in straight sets also. Um, so... They were, you know, they were creeping up. They were catching him, and he and he knew it. And this, this was his raging against it. Every now and again, he would, he would do that. And uh, and of course, the following year after that, Sampras would finally win another Grand Slam title. He'd win the two thousand two U.S. Open, and that was the last we ever saw of him. David, you spoke to Evgeny Kafelnikov about that final, um, and you got a very interesting and surprising perspective on what happened to be honest i think pete had too much uh, respect for for Marad, and which is was fine you know the kid the kid was was winning the, like like i said kid was winning titles he was beating the very best players already at the, at the age of 20 and uh, i think Marat obviously played the, the best match of uh, one of the matches of his career that's no question but I think Pete is just, uh, you know, overestimate Marat's uh, ability, and uh, Marat took it to his advantage. You know, he played solid. Uh, he he returned well. Uh, he he played without fear. You know, obviously everyone who goes on the center court of the U.S. Open against Pete Sampras feels feels the fear. You know, to me, Pete Sampras is uh, if if not of the best player in the world, but one of the best players in the in the world ever played our game no no question that the Mara definitely deserves that title the way he was playing at the time hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. What was the reaction, David, of the tennis world and maybe even the the world beyond tennis to that win? How How much was... Marit Safin elevated in in public consciousness after that. How much did the world sit up and and take notice? Because because he, as you see, you know, you described him. He was a good looking guy, wasn't he? He had charisma. You know that it was clear to see. Mm. Sort of oozed out of him, didn't it? He was he was the full package. Well, he he was the one that they that they wanted. Really, he was the answer to all the prayers in so many different ways of this. This guy, because he, he was fun, he was funny, he was interesting. You know, he turned heads wherever wherever he went, and he had this this game that could just take on all comers. I did find it fascinating, Kafelnikov, having this theory that Sampras overestimated him. You know, maybe that's something that happens to great champions; they start to fear what's coming. Um, but I I remember. In my role at the time, working for the ATP, I remember one journalist saying to me, "Don't you lot get your get your teeth into this Marit Safin? Don't meaning, don't try to smooth out his rough edges. Don't try to media train him." I mean, I took that as an insult because that's just not my way of doing things at all. The more outspoken they are, the more rough around the edges they are, the better. As far as I'm concerned, I just want the real, the the full package, the real. The real item, the raw sassy. Unless that package is Marcelo Rios. Well, yeah. Okay, I'll give you that one. Oh, no, actually, <laughs> although I did argue once, and I remember being in a marketing uh, meeting once about Marcelo Rios, and I, says, I said, look, if he wants to be promoted as the bad guy, let's just do it. Let's make him the Darth mm. Vader of the tour. That's fine by me. Why do we have to say he's a good guy? He's not. Anyway, um, Merritt Safin, though, was a good bloke, but there was such an edge to him. And he was, I remember him going on the David Letterman show straight after, like the night after winning that US Open. And I've just been watching some of the footage back. And I mean, it's so funny because he's so young, you know. And honestly, he looks a bit drunk 
to be honest. And uh, and Letterman says it's to him... It's entirely plausible that he was a bit drunk. Letterman right? says to him, are you a bit drunk? <laughs> and and he says to him, what did you celebrate with last night? And he said, vodka. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember this. I think he actually came into the press conference, Safin, with vodka uh, after winning the tournament. And uh, yeah, he'd, he clearly had a fantastic night. Um, and he did, he did look a bit bleary-eyed and a bit slurry in the way he was talking. Uh, but very, very entertaining. Uh, that's, but he could carry that off. I mean, his, his English was limited, really. And yet, the look in his eye, the way he would just carry himself he could communicate even though his english at that time was really limited and uh and yeah there there was there were real hopes that this guy was going to be i suppose what others have become and taken his place really in the generation that we have today but obviously i i'm only giving that as an onlooker and from somebody who worked on kind of the other side on the public relations side it's, it'd be interesting to get a view from a couple of the media members that covered Safin back then Chris Clary and Mary Carrillo they're always the ones we we go to in situations like this let's hear what they have to recall of what Marit Safin was like for them to deal with loved him he was spontaneous off the cuff unpredictable and I don't think he BS'd us very much. I don't think he gave us full disclosure about his finances or some of the issues with his stuff off court in terms of the agents and things like that. But talking about his rivals and his own limitations and other people's uh, limitations, he was he was great. Uh, wasn't always, you know, great on the page because sometimes his English didn't always scan and translate directly to a great quote that you could quote verbatim. But the spirit was there. Ah, he was charming. He was a great-looking guy, very charming. He had a temper, um, but he was kind of funny about it most of the time. And his game was just... When he played well, as he did at the 2005 Australian Open, as he did in the 2000 US Open final against Pete, when he really was at the top of his game, it was he made it look unfairly easy. You know? So it was a very attractive game. Uh, I was watching a dressage at the recent Tokyo Olympics uh, and somebody said something that was so interesting, uh, talking about the horses. If there is an insistence on obedience from the horses, they get discouraged. You know, you can break them. I thought, wow, that's that's really understandable, you know, and and I think that's kind of what Marat was like, Um you know, he was this thoroughbred. You could see, you could see how he glistened. You know, but I think if you tried too hard to make him try hard, it was probably a mistake. The horse comparison we didn't know we needed, but we definitely did. We needed it. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. So, so what happened next with Safin? Then he he should have been number one. After that U.S. Open win, but the that the quirky ranking system, which I think was only applied for that one year, I think oh, yeah. it was it was agreed that that was a disaster. Yeah. Um, and Safin, would it be fair to say Safin was kind of the main victim of that disaster? Oh, he was absolutely stitched up. I'm afraid, and I I'm as culpable as anybody else. I was working for the ATP at the time, and they came up with this idea that the the ranking system was problematic because. 
sometimes a player would go up when they've just lost because of the defending of points from a previous year and all this sort of stuff. And uh, so they decided they wanted to have a points race from zero every year like the Formula One. I thought this was a great idea. You know, I don't know why I did, but I did. And uh, until until Fabrice Santoro won the won Doha and was suddenly being talked about as world number one. Uh, <laughs> but, but no offense to Fabrice, but that's what was happening, and it was people were up in arms about it. Um, and uh, and I was arguing with everybody about it. I thought it was a really good idea. Um, and then suddenly we got to the end of the year, and Matt Safin was on what we know as the ranking system. He became world number one, just ahead of the effectively the ATP finals which was that year being held in Lisbon and we as the ATP were told not to mark this in any way not to to celebrate it not to promote it because the real number one was going to be crowned at the end of this tournament in Lisbon that's how how it was going to work and it was this points race and I'm afraid I must have been brainwashed because I went along with this and I thought it was okay um, it's only in years since that I've realised that the game was doing itself a disservice, and and the game also realised because the next year it wasn't we weren't doing that. I'm telling you, but poor Armarit Safin never got his moment, never got it marked, and a fantastic tournament in Lisbon ensued. Gustavo Curtin managed to beat both Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi back to back in semis and final to overtake Safin. So great story in that regard, and and it was wonderful scenes. But you had effectively two number ones crowned in the same week and only one of them recognised. And it was, um, in hindsight, it was a bad idea. Wow. The the injustice. Mm. Um, he reached three more Grand Slam finals and he did get back to number one, didn't he? Um, and, and was that... Was that marked? I know he was never there for any... It was nine weeks in total, wasn't it? He had a, a, a two or three sort of two or three-week spells... Did he? Was there a kind of overdue fanfare yeah, I mean, in yes, recognition I, of him I, being previously shot? I suppose there was, but it was still. When you think about it now, when you think of the fuss we've made about players getting to world number one, he was he was let down really by the by the ATP by the game at that time. I think. I mean, I don't think he's. I think he was hurt at the time at the end of two thousand. I think it hurt that he knew he'd got to number one and. And he'd done all this work, and it wasn't getting recognised. But, mm. um, but still, to, to, to stick him on the front of a poster, you know, to make him front and centre of a whole marketing campaign, and for him to be the one that delivers on it, you know, for the ATP, I am the new ball. You're welcome. And then, and then for them to to shaft him, that is, I can imagine that being incredibly hurtful actually yeah they just um look they did it in a well-meaning yeah attempt to promote the sport they just got it wrong i'm afraid in hindsight so all three of the the grand slam the the further grand slam finals he he would reach were in australia in 2002 he lost to thomas johansson of course (laughs) in one of the most memorable Grand Slam finals ever for all the weirdest reasons, I would say. F- fair? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. <laughs> and I think I was probably just a bit too young to fully 
comprehend the subtext to what the various commentators and pundits were saying about the composition of Marit Safin's player box and his off-court behaviours during that tournament. Um, but I suspect you, David, were, were very aware of what was going on and what people were were implying. Mm. Yes, there were several women sitting in his player box. And, um, well, I don't know the full details of who they were or, or what sort of relationship he had not with sure, them. Not sure he did either. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were, they were getting talked about a lot and they were... They didn't seem too bothered about the fact that all the cameras were on them at all, and uh, and he was getting talked about. I can't completely remember how it was all covered at the time, personally, but I just remember him showing up and and look. Thomas Johansson played blooming well, but Marit Safin was in a different league to Johansson in terms of ability, and he was the overwhelming favourite for that final. And the, the feeling was that he really wasn't he really wasn't focused. We're not talking about three women sort of dotted around his players' box. They were sat sort of shoulder to shoulder, weren't they? Mm. Front, front and centre, like like the the three, um, you know, in Beauty and the Beast, the three sort of chorus ladies <laughs> that are sort of doing a very buxom can can. That's that's what it reminded my very innocent childhood brain of <laughs> the ladies that loved Gaston. And Safin was Gaston. Anyway, he didn't. He didn't win that Australian Open final. Uh, Mary <laughs> tells us. I was, was going to say Mary tells a story that that moment reminded her of a similar but slightly different experience she had with Vitas Gerolaitis at uh, Madison Square Garden several years before, where he rushed up to her with a with a load of tickets and said, "Look, you need to put these at the box office with these names and." everything and then the match develops and Mary looks around and she realizes that there are these women sitting in the four different corners of the stadium they're the people that Vitas Gerolaitis had got the tickets for but he was but he'd kept them all apart in the stadium and Mary just says Saffing just had them all in the player box at once (laughs) (laughs) um he he then reached the Australian Open final in 2004, he lost to, to Federer after beating Under Agassi and Andy Roddick en route to that final. What would you would you remember of that, David? It was amazing. Uh, that that was an incredible run because again he'd been written off by this point as yesterday's man, really somebody who's got all this talent but is just not not delivering on it really. And I mean, you know, he's still only early twenties, but it it felt like. It felt like he'd just got the wrong attitude. And then suddenly he got it all together that week. Agassi was playing brilliantly and he beat him. I think he beat him in five sets. And he beat Roddick when Roddick was coming off having won the US Open uh, in 2003. He was the world number one, was Roddick. He was bringing it. Oh, my word, the, the intensity of that match that night. I remember commentating on it. And to watch Safin step up to to Roddick and take on that serve and take on the forehand and just still have just a little bit too much for him when he was at the top of his game. That showed. I mean, in the final, I think uh, Federer was at his very best and Safin was a bit 
spent to be honest in that final um but that was we we had a number of snapshots of Marat Safin throughout his career is really what we ended up with we didn't end up with runs and momentum a lot of these wins felt like they didn't have an awful lot of meaning because they were isolated but when he turned it on he was a match for them all and he comes back the following Australian Open and he and he wins it and yes he he beats Leighton Hewitt in straight sets in the final and that's pretty straightforward but but really I think we all remember the semi-final of that match that is one of my favorite matches of all time Safin beating Federer 9-7 in the fifth in that in that semi-final and whereas in in previous Australian Opens he had had the huge wins in the run-up to the final and had failed to to complete the job as it were he did it he did it this time he did it against the home favorite he completely outclassed him he produced his best when it mattered and yeah i mean it's it's a shame i think that he wasn't able to do that more but i'm glad he did it on that one on that one occasion in australia mm. I mean, that performance against federer in the semi-final is outstanding i mean i think it'd be tough to choose between the 2000 us open final and and that semi-final in the australian open in terms of safin's best performance um you know federer won every grand slam on a hard court and a grass court in 2004 2005 2006 and 2007 apart from this one you know this is peak roger federer and he gets to match point and he he, he plays a tweener which i think he regrets and he, he could have hooked up a, a lob but basically they're toe-to-toe and Marat Safin beats him and there were very few players who did that to Roger Federer. It's the tweener cautionary tale. Mm. The, the other that point. point that is forever memorable is the the match point in which he finished it because Safin had several chances, several match mm. points that he didn't take and he was he was getting rattled he was nervous he was choking to be honest and Federer's making him choke and then suddenly on this final one he just goes for broke with that backhand down the line and it knocks Federer physically off his feet in his attempts to get to the ball because he's been wrong-footed it's a totally low percentage stroke you know it's not something he really should be going for at this stage in a tense moment and he goes for broke to Safin over the high part of the net with a backhand when he's outside the tram lines and he nails it as pure as you like and Federer even with his elasticity and movement moves to it but stumbles and ends up on his back gets the ball back and Safin just finishes it with a rolled forehand into the open space. But that backhand in that moment against Federer, I think, summed up just how good Safin could be. He made double-handed backhands cool again, didn't he? I mean, because let's face it, tennis has and has always had a, a snobbery about two-handed backhands. One-handed backhands just are seen as aesthetically superior aren't they kind of regardless of the effectiveness especially you and me Catherine mm, yeah but that jumped jumped double hander that he just timed as if it was the easiest thing in the world and actually it's the hardest was a thing of absolute beauty and it made double handers cool again and it made me proud to be a double hander (laughs) 
Um, but but let's face it, after that 2005 Australian Open win, his his career headed into decline. Yes, he, you know, he, he had moments here and there. I think uh, uh, the last of those was a, a Wimbledon semi-final in 2008, beat Novak Djokovic along the way there. And for a lot of 2005, he stayed in the world's top five. I think he... He got back to to number three in the world, but after sort of rankings wise, after two thousand and five, it's it's steep decline. Really, we're talking you know majority of the time outside of the world's top forty, top fifty, and and eventually ending up, you know, languishing. You know, it's 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 up and down, but he never gets back into the top ten, um, and he actually he retires age twenty nine. In, in 2009, which, look, it was young at the time. It wasn't unforeseen. It felt like he was winding down, didn't it? But goodness me, 29 is young to be retiring, isn't it? So young. Um, we actually, well, I say we, the, the very much royal we, friend friend of the show, Dave Levy, who has been cruelly edited out of what you're about to hear. Um, <laughs> Dave Levy did a, an absolutely cracking interview with Marit Safin back in 2015 when he covered um, an ATP Champions Tour event with him. And he, he got Safin's own take on what happened after the 2000 US Open final. Um, so let's let's hear about it in Safin's own words. Of course, the way I played in uh, 2000 was, uh, for me, it was, uh, um, I didn't know that I could play tennis like this. Uh, for me, it was an incredible experience. I just was surprised with myself and uh, then I had a couple of uh, finals uh, of Australia I lost I had an opportunity in the French Open semi-final semi-final in Wimbledon and uh, so you, you every time you don't manage to to win a second Grand Slam you start to be paranoid about it because everybody yeah 2001 and what's 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 next you lost two finals and it's not really really good um, so I was under a lot of stress to to win again, and um, because I knew that uh, I had a chance, but also the time was flying. And after five years, I was lucky that uh, uh, to win the Australian Open. So I was a little bit more calm about it. But I had a paranoia, big paranoia about uh, winning the second Grand Slam, and uh, I was lucky to achieve it. I was lucky in a way, and I was unlucky in a way because I had a lot of uh, a lot of injuries. And unfortunately, I had to quit because uh, because of my knee, I couldn't run anymore. And to compete against these guys, the young ones, Djokovic, uh, Murray, Nadal, you need to run. And I could feel that I cannot I cannot run anymore. And it's a little bit tough for myself uh, to realize that uh, you can't uh, you can't be back in the top ten, uh, even fighting for top five. And for me, it was a big thing because otherwise, to stay at 30, 40 in the world. I was not. It's not really my uh, my achievement. With respect to all the players who are around 30, 40 in the world, but but the way I played, if uh, if I would be healthy, I would continue. I would continue to play. But unfortunately, uh, too many injuries. It's sad, isn't it? It's sad to hear him, hear him talking talking like that. I, you know, there was a lot of quite lazy narrative around Safin that you know he didn't love the game enough. To, to want to play on, wasn't committed to enough, wasn't prepared to put the hard work in. And look, elements of that may all have been true, but he he clearly would have liked to have played longer. 
had his body allowed. You know, that 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 analysis was clearly reductive and and unfair to him, I think. Yeah, I would say it was. And I also think that he he had to go through a lot in, in his mind and, and in his life to, to, to be a tennis player. Um, I think Chris talked about that. that, that, that that's not easy to, to, to do that, to leave home at such a young age and, and to try to handle all the things that come along with winning a Grand Slam title at the age of 20 and having all these people staring at you all the time. And, and he, he was stressed out. You can hear the stress in him um, from his career. And I, I do remember that as well. I remember that feeling of of him wondering how to handle all of this and uh, and with all the people saying, well, you should be this much better because you're that good. And um, yeah, it'd be quite interesting if, if he'd have had a really good sports psychologist, for instance, as part of his team back then. What Would that have helped? And... and help maybe if he'd have had a particular type of team of physios the way all the players do now I've no idea if it would have made a massive difference but it's not that surprising that he had a a hard time backing it up time after time and and I'm quite happy to remember him fondly for what he did do as a player and and as a as a character Mm. And he he um, he went on to have a career as a politician, didn't he? He was a member of the the Russian Parliament or the Duma. And actually, I um, I put his name into Google earlier, just trying to bring his Wikipedia page up. And uh, at the top it said Marit Safin, former Russian politician. <laughs> Which, I mean, definitely true. But is I don't know. Maybe he was world number one at politics but it feels like that's not the the first and foremost thing he should he should be recognized for it's like describing it's like if you put ed balls into google and it said former british ballroom dancer (laughs) (laughs) where does um former atp cup captain come on perhaps having pecking order He, he popped up there didn't he he did, didn't he? Yeah. After, I mean, he's, I, I, I've not asked him explicitly about this, so I could be, could be putting unfair words into his mouth, but I don't think he's particularly into coaching, is he? <laughs> he didn't look it. <laughs> Quite interesting talking to Chris about what, uh, what he's like now, because he, he, he did this big interview for him for his book on Federer and uh, and he said he he was rolling his own cigarettes (laughs) during the interview (laughs) which is a lovely image yes yes my experience of him on the champions tour I did a few events with him was you are exactly what I expected you to be in in all the ways most of them good you know but he there was definitely as as Chris Clary said in in one of the earlier clips, you know, there was he he never BS'd anyone. You know, he he was very much himself um throughout his career and and after his career and we're gonna end on a on a, a clip from Chris Clary reflecting on the the big the big question around Marit Safin, which people love to love to debate still sometimes when he when he pops up and becomes relevant. Should he have won more? Was he an underachiever? Chris says he should have been part of that Federer 
and Nadal group for a while. So why didn't Safin fulfill his potential? Well, what outgrew it with Safin was the the off-court stuff and the off-court work and the commitment to the craft that the people who took over the game possessed. Rafa, Novak, Roger, Andy Murray, too, till his body gave out. That's where they took it to a place where Murat couldn't follow. But in terms of, because Murat didn't have that self-discipline, didn't have that emotional control, didn't have that consistency off the court to be able to stay with them. But in terms of the product on the court, what he was bringing to the equation when you watched him play, yeah, I agree 100%. That's one of the reasons why I had that number one epiphany um, was because I felt like he was just next level. You can kind of see it. We're watching um, Serena and Venus, obviously, at the time in the women's game. That was next level. They were bringing a new level of power and new level of uh, capacity to hit winners from places where people couldn't do it before. And with Murad, I think the big thing was the two-handed backhand, which had been not, not, a, not by any means a holding shot. It's been a great shot at men's tennis for a long time. But Murad at six foot four could hit it incredibly well from all different heights. He could hit it low. He can flick it. He could hit it, boom, sweet spot in the middle, right around, you know, chest height. And he could leap. And he could really leap when he was young and hit it, you know, way off the ground effectively too. That kind of um, leaping two-hander that Michael Chang used a lot. But he took it to a new level. And he had power. He had all the shots. So to me, that was, that was next level. And the game quickly responded and produced other great talents that ended up trumping him. But I'm still convinced, David, that if he had had the mental side and those things under control and a better off-court system, that he could have been up there with, um, with Novak and Roger, Rafa, and Andy um, and been a huge, huge part of that rivalries, those rivalries in that era for a long time. He had, he had the game for it. Mm. And that's it, isn't it? I think few would disagree with that. I think you can debate whether you know the the mental side of the game isn't given enough credit as sort of part of the talent package that is a talent in itself that he didn't have to the extent that that those other guys had it you know it's it's com- completely irrelevant to debate debate what Nick Kyrgios would be with the mind of Novak Djokovic because he just wouldn't be Nick Kyrgios that would be a different human being altogether but yeah, I will remember Marit Safin for the that the leaping double-handed backhand cross-court winner. And there are still there are still nobody around that can play it like that of his no. size. You know, to to be his size and to be playing it like Matt Roberts, I mean Marcelo Rios, <laughs> um, is is incredible, really, for a guy of his height and his weight. I mean, he is. His shoulders, he's built. He is a, not really built like a tennis player that you would think of, the, these lithe physiques of, of the current day. Um, but he still was able to do that. So it was an amazing thing. And and like I said, I, I going into YouTube a little this morning and going down those rabbit warrens, the, th- the good news is that this stuff is still out there. It's worth having a look at what this guy could do. There are only snapshots of his career, but the best ones are pretty much as good as it gets. Yeah. And and I think there's a lot of tennis players who fall into the similar category of Safin in terms of absolutely awesome on-court talent. But just as Chris has described there, maybe didn't have the emotional control and the, and, and the mental talent. The fact 
therefore, that Safin managed to put it together enough times to still get to world number one, to still win two Grand Slams, win, I think, five Masters 1000 events. He's got a Hall of Fame career in a way that David Nalbandian, immensely talented, doesn't. And Nick Kyrgios doesn't. You know, Marcelo Rios didn't win slams. So I think Safin did manage to package it enough times. It's just the talent was so overwhelming, it almost doesn't feel like enough. Um, That's such a good point. He's an interesting case, I think. Mm. Yeah, very. Oh, it's been... It's been a pleasure to relive the year 2000. I remember that that November I I went on a little mini break with my dad to Boston, um, sort of a last minute thing and waiting for it. We checked into the hotel room and uh, on the, you know, they put a sort of really generic um, magazines that no one's ever read out on the sort of coffee table. And it was some some, you know, lifestyle magazine and Marit Safin was on the front of it, you know, the brand new US Open champion. And um yeah, I really, really remember that. He 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 made his mark on tennis. Absolutely. We can debate whether it could or should have been a bigger mark, but he he absolutely made his mark and yeah, I've enjoyed reliving his career. We'll be reliving in our next US Open Relived podcast, the 2015 calendar Grand Slam attempt of Serena Williams and in particular that semi-final loss to Roberta Vinci and the circus surrounding it. And actually, while we've been recording this podcast, I've just had the news flash up on my phone that Serena Williams is out of this year's US Open with a hamstring tear. So, yeah, we won't talk about now that now. But it will certainly feature, I think, in uh, in our discussions around Serena and her career in the next US Open Relived, which will be with you in a couple of days' time. Um, we've got our guest editor that I'm going to thank one more time, James Meredith. Thank you for your contributions to this episode. We are, yeah, our our, our Relived guest editors have so done us proud this year we've we've been really bowled over by their by their contributions so thank you we've got our executive producer as always chris albert lee we've got our usual mascots scalzel mousel zeus and rogue and billy jean has billy jean king and of course we have lovely luna slash sia who is our mascot for the week and luna has scored herself a, a relived week so well done to Luna. Thank you to all of the contributors to the episode that spoke to David within a sort of three-hour period of frenzy. <laughs> Mary Carrillo, Chris Clary, Evgeny Kafelnikov, Jeff Tarango, Paul Anacone, and back in the day, speaking to friend of the pod, Dave Levy, Marit Safin himself. So thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Do all the stuff. We'll be back with another one of these in a couple of days. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.